Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Hey everyone, welcome back to this month's episode of BFR Radio. Thanks for joining in. I think this is actually going to be a really jam-packed episode with lots of great information. Hope everyone's doing well during this really interesting time of our lives around COVID. And there's a lot of people in isolation uh, with their training. And in Australia, we're quite lucky. Within about a month's time, we can start accessing gyms, which is an exciting period of time. And just an important note here is that with returning to normal training and facilities and importantly, the gym as well, we need to ensure that we have systematic reloading of our bodies to ensure that we don't overload our body too quickly and therefore we don't injure ourselves as well. Now, for those who don't have access to good strength facilities and sufficient loadings, there's actually been some really great presentations out there at the moment on how to train effectively with lower than normal loads, yet it still has a performance aspect to it. In particular, I need to draw your attention to a recent isometric presentation from SNC coach Alex Natira, who's also a colleague but a good friend of mine. And he highlighted the effectiveness of isometric training and perhaps one of the most applied and pragmatic presentations I've seen for a really long time. He's brought the science into his presentation and showed you how you can practically do isometric training using the concepts of isometric holds, but more so isometric pushing using simple ropes or tie-down straps to create this isometric push. He also highlighted in this presentation the importance of trying to add load and to be quite inventive around it. So if you don't have access to even just weights or light dumbbells, using heavy books or filled bags full of weight or even just accessing odd objects you might find around the house. Now, for those who don't have access to sufficient gym facilities, the addition of BFR is a great tool in this scenario. Now, this is just a concept in my head. So although a load is still required from a performance aspect, the addition of BFR with the lighter loads is that proxy for the heavier loads and may provide an answer during this period where we don't have access to really good facilities. So the addition of bags filled with heavy books or liquid bands or odd objects with the addition of BFR could provide an overall improved stimulus. Now I've actually been experimenting with the inclusion of BFR light loads and isometrics and as I'm quite an experienced user with BFR it's quite an intense session but I actually find that I'm recovering really well and I'm ready to go the next day so I'm doing some split upper and lower body sessions and although this is not peer-reviewed I think sometimes as coaches we need to start to be thinking of innovative ways of incorporating different tools in our toolbox to help improve our outcome at the end of it and look once again load is king and the addition of isometrics and external loads is the best combinations but once again without the appropriate strength facilities the addition of BFR with isometrics could provide that could provide another level of stimulus that could yield a slightly better result than using low loads alone. As I said, I've been trying this out for the last couple of weeks and look, the sessions are quite tough and I've actually put some videos together on how to incorporate BFR with isometric based exercises and you can check this out on my YouTube channel and that's Sports Rehab Oz, that's Sports Rehab AUS. Now onto today's actual podcast and it seemed to actually form a theme 
after my interview with Paralympian Sam Tate. And he is a complete T10 paraplegic and an Olympian in a sport of sit skiing. I've been trying to get this interview done for quite some time. And one of my earlier guests, SNC coach Kelly Bean, spoke to me about introducing BFR to Sam Tate. However, it was in the early days, you said, look, it was better to revisit that several months down the track. And look, to be honest, it's probably been over a year since that initial conversation. So it's really great to have him on this podcast. He'll talk about how he incorporates BFR more from a performance aspect. So some really good practical takeaways there for you as an athlete. From a contraindication or indication perspective, there's a really great article called The Key Considerations When Conducting Katsu Training, which just as the heading states, there's that from their own research and experiences and their systematic application of katsu in the field, they've outlined key considerations which you should take into consideration around implementation of katsu training. Now, I've actually read a lot into katsu training and I actually feel it has a more comprehensive training guideline that offers more than just the BFR literature alone and that perhaps a lot of guidelines that you see today with respect to blood flow restriction is based solely on literature and academic peer-reviewed research. Now, not saying that Katsu haven't done that. They've actually got lots of peer-reviewed research. They have their own journal, but they actually have lots of really good systems. It's been around since the 1960s, and this is where BFR started. And that's one of the things they talk about in a lot of their literature and their training guidelines is that they don't believe it should be called BFR, but rather because we don't want to form complete restriction or complete occlusion of a limb, but rather we want to form a percentage of this occlusion. And so they actually talk about this thing called blood flow moderation. However, I think the word BFR is so firmly embedded into our vernacular that that will never change. Anyway, in particular with respect to contraindications and indication, which is a reason as to why we should use a certain treatment, is that they have a five-point system that uses risk factors in determining katsu training indication. The higher the number of the points, the greater the risk. And the higher the combined number of points for several risk factors, the greater the risk. And what they actually do in this article, and I'll put it, the link to it in the show notes, is they have factors which are five points down to one point as well. Those people who score five points straight away would include contraindications such as history of deep vein thrombosis, hereditary thrombotic tendency, and antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And in this case, BFR or Katsu will be totally avoided. Within this scale here, quadriplegia scores only two points. And when you look at their five-point system, and if no other risk factors are systematic with the user, they could then use Katsu under controlled training supervision. This is actually a really great read. And once again here, I think that the Katsu literature offers a greater detail of how BFR could be safely implemented into your own environment and also gives some really good practical takeaways as well that you can implement. In fact, my workshops, I actually incorporate a lot of these points into my systems, which I find to be very useful in my own practice as well. And that's actually not the article. When I was trying to put this together, I try and find a peer-reviewed article that complements the guest really well. 
and I started to look at BFR and spinal cord injuries. And look, there's a couple of really quite interesting cases. However, the article I'm going to focus on here is tetraplegics, which is, I must say, is unlike Sam. But I think it gives us an interesting aspect of how BFR may be able to assist those with spinal cords with respect to just general function. So we're at the, the acute phase of a spinal cord injury with less functional use. Whereas with SAM, we're going to go into something that's much more functional and, and actually it's performance-based. I think you're going to get something out of both of them. So it's going to really cover both spectrums of people with spinal cord injuries. But for the study I want to highlight today, it came out of the European Journal of Applied Physiology in 2016. And it was called Electrical Stimulation and Blood Flow Restriction Increase Wrist Extensor Cross-Sectional Area and flow-mediated dilation following spinal cord injury. My disclaimer here is, is that I'm not an expert on spinal cord injuries. Therefore, I thought it was important to include some of the information that appeared into the introduction around incomplete spinal cord injuries. And these injuries actually result in a detrimental sublesional skeletal muscle atrophy, which has been documented in both upper and lower extremities. Persons with tetraplegia with an injury above C8 have 25% smaller wrist extensors compared with those with paraplegia and able body controls. Individuals with incomplete tetraplegia commonly experience limited upper extremities function, reduced ability to manipulate objects, and an increased dependence on others in accomplishing activities of daily living. Therefore, restoring activities that are targeted towards gains in hand and upper extremity functions can be accomplished by increasing both skeletal muscle size and strength. And this therefore may lead to an enhanced quality of life by increasing independence in persons with spinal cord injury. With respect to rehabilitation, it's been shown that neuromuscular electrical stimulations, or I'm going to refer this to as EMS, has shown to improve strength and also muscle hypertrophy, especially in the rehabilitation space. And as I've covered in other podcasts, using loads at 20 to 30% of 1RM in strength training has been shown to improve size and strength of muscles. And I've also covered in another podcast, the combination therapy of EMS and BFR have been shown to be very effective in recovery from ACL reconstruction. Now, there is another part of the study here, and they talked about flow-mediated dilation. And that was basically trying to understand the mechanisms or as a reason why this potentially could be effective. I'm not going to really go into that here, but they just spoke about one of the mechanisms that could be suggested to stimulate skeletal muscle hypertrophy. And there was around nitric oxide. And the link here with nitric oxide, which I may have mentioned in a previous podcast, is that it's a key player in endothelium-dependent flow-mediated dilation. And therefore, their theory here is potentially that an increase in endothelial-dependent nitric oxide secretion with the addition of BFR may likely contribute to skeletal muscle hypertrophy and improvements in flow-mediated dilation in person with spinal cord injury. Now, to prevent this from blowing out to be a really long podcast, I'm not going to really focus on that section, but just want to just highlight this study, what they did, and the improvements that they saw. The first part of the study, which I really want to focus on primarily, was a six-week training study where they had nine subjects, and it was conducted to investigate the effects of full blood flow occlusion using 30% of systolic blood pressure during a combined BFR and EMS group compared with EMS alone on the wrist extensors. There was quite an extensive exclusion criteria, but that is pretty much reflective of anyone doing CAT2 or BFR training anyway. 
with respect to the training they actually performed. It was six weeks of training, twice weekly for 30 minutes, where both the left and right wrist extensor muscle groups were stimulated under full supervision. The right forearm received a combined therapy of BFR plus EMS, and the left forearm received the EMS only to serve as the control. To try to avoid the effects of dominance or sinus, that's right v left on the outcomes of the study, range of movement of wrist extension and wrist extension torque were tested prior to the interventions to check for differences in upper limb functions between the sides. The blood flow restriction was achieved by inflating a blood pressure cuff placed around the participant's forearm to 30% greater than resting systolic blood pressure. It was inflated during the EMS exercise for almost eight minutes to perform the necessary 40 repetitions. And look, a lot of work now talks about using limb circumferences to have a more individualized pressure and potentially to push away from uh, complete limb occlusion. However, uh, this is what the study did. So not something that I would typically do. I would use a percentage of arterial occlusion. There was two electrodes and from a basic point of view here, one was placed proximal to the wrist above the radial and ulnar processes and whereas the other one was placed distal to the lateral epicondyle and this covered the belly of the wrist extensor muscle groups. The frequency of the stimulation was set at 20 hertz and it had a contraction relaxation time of five seconds on and five seconds off. The amplitude of the current was gradually increased until functional wrist extension was attained without finger extension. And once this current was set, 40 contractions, that's four sets of 10, were delivered simultaneously to both forearms. With respect to pre and post measurements, this included muscle cross-sectional area through ultrasound and also tape measurements, muscle torque using a biodex system, and grass and release test determined functions of the hand. The two muscles that they focused on with respect to cross-sectional area under ultrasound was the extensor carpi radialis and the extensor digitorium communis. With respect to measuring wrist extensor torque, this was assessed during electrical-induced muscle contractions of two to three seconds in duration. And this was measured using a Biodex dynamometer and stimulating electrodes were positioned exactly as described above for the training sessions. It's important to understand that electrical stimulation was delivered at two frequencies, 20 and 80 Hertz, and at three different current amplitudes, 50, 100, and 150 milliamps. The functional grass and release test was conducted before and after the training. And with this, each participant was required to lift five objects, a peg, a block, can, a one pound dumbbell weight, and a fork. These objects were placed on a flat table and they were asked to move the objects from lateral to medial over 60 centimeter distance and release at midline. A successful completion of the task required the individual use the thumb and the index, which is a lateral pinch, or the thumb and four fingers, that's a palmer grass, and place the object in an upright position upon release. A stopwatch was used to determine the time in seconds it was taken to complete the grass and release of the five objects. The participant started with the right hand, followed by the left one. And the speed for each task was calculated as the distance in centimetres, covered divided by time in seconds. This test was performed to determine the efficacy of increasing wrist extensor cross-sectional area or strength on hand functions. And this grass and release test has been previously validated following surface EMS in other people with spinal cord injuries. The primary findings were that with respect to improvements in cross-sectional area, the extensor carpi radialis increased by 17% in the combined BFR and EMS group 
compared with the EMS group only. With respect to the lack of statistical changes in the other muscle group, that's the extensor digitorum communis, cross-sectional area, the authors thought that this may be attributed to the size of the muscle and actually the difficulty in identifying the anatomical boundaries prior to the training. And therefore, they had a greater variability that exceeded 49% of the average cross-sectional areas amongst the study participants in the combined forearm group. They found that this variability dropped to 38%, and was accompanied with a non-significant increase of 0.14 centimeters squared following the combined group, which in other words, they were able to identify the muscle group easier and there was less variability. And they still thought that although non-significant, it actually led to a positive hypertrophic response. This increase in muscle cross-sectional area was also accompanied with an increase in evoked torque in both groups following applications of 150 and 150 milliamps with an increase in specific tension following the combined group. With respect to the functional grasp and release test, I think a little bit more detail here is quite fascinating. Prior to the training, two of the nine subjects were not able to move any of the five objects. And also three additional participants could not lift the soda can with their left hand. Following the six weeks of training, one of the two participants was now able to use their right hand to move the five objects but not with the left. The other participant in this one of two used their left hand to move the five objects and the right hand to move the fork. With respect to the participants who could not lift the soda can with their left hand, one of the three participants were now able to lift the soda can with their left hand. And overall, there was a detectable improvement in the ability to selectively move the peg in the combined BFR and EMS group. Both interventions appear to cause clinical improvements in the selected parameters. However, it's clear that significant improvement was noted only in the combined BFR and EMS training group during moving the peg. This could potentially be reflected by the changes in the cross-sectional area of the extensor carpi radialis or by both the strength and specific tension improvements of the wrist extensors following the combined therapy of BFR plus EMS. The authors went on further to also note there was a non-significant but a clinical drop in the time required to move the one pound dumbbell weight following training using both interventions. Although I didn't want to go into part two of the study around potential mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy, just a little bit of a summary here. The results in the study indicated that an acute bout of the combined BFR plus EMS resulted in a greater flow media dilation compared with BFR only. It's also important to note here that EMS exercise results in greater lactate accumulation in paralyzed muscles. Therefore, a combined therapy of EMS plus BFR may have resulted in a greater lactate accumulation that led to a greater flow dilation and therefore a release of nitric oxide. The authors went on to say that this warrants further studies to investigate whether improvements in flow dilation during a combined therapy may contribute to skeletal muscle hypertrophy, the trained muscles. So trying to highlight a little mechanism as to potentially why this worked. Although this was a quick skim over the study here, it really highlights that combined BFR and EMS therapy is a safe and feasible strategy that can be used in rehabilitations for people with spinal cord injury. Six weeks of a BFR and EMS training intervention resulted in meaningful muscle hypertrophy and notable improvements in electrically evoked muscle strength of the wrist and extensor muscles. 
This was also translated into a modest but clinical improvement in hand function as determined by decrease in time and the increased speed of moving selected objects, which I think overall is what we're trying to achieve here in terms of just improving function, but also just a daily living as well. And from a more simplistic point of view, it was a really simple protocol of two 30 minute sessions over a six week period. Again here, I'm not an expert in spinal cord injuries, but I think it really highlights that in these special populations that BFR could have a real meaningful impact for people out there. I strongly urge you to have a look at the article and to read into greater detail. I could have went on a lot longer, but I felt that this whole podcast would have blown out a little bit too long because I'm really keen to get Sam onto this. So that's probably my segue into how you do BFR. And on today's episode of How You Do BFR, I've got Winter Paralympian Sam Tate. Welcome aboard. Hey Chris, how you going? Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on board. So the reason why I've got Sam on is, is that in one of my early interviews, I brought on strength coach Kelly Bean, and we spoke about various different things that she's doing with BFR. And she spoke about you, said that you obviously use BFR or was going to start introducing it. So we thought we'd give it some time for you to actually be comfortable with it. And um, once again, this episode or segment is just about telling your story and it's fascinating. Just as a small little bio here, 2018 Winter Paralympian at Pyeongchang. He came 11th in downhill in sit skiing and he's going to explain what sit skiing is. And he's also 2019 World Championships where he came sixth. And with the current coronavirus at the moment, he cut his season short where from all accounts he was, he was having quite a good season. So really um, over to you, Sam. Tell us a little bit about yourself, a bit about your background, what sit skiing is and where the sport has brought you to today. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I guess I'll start from the start. I had a motorbike accident in 2013 in April, which led me to be a T10 complete paraplegic. For anyone who doesn't know what that is or what that means, it means I'm paralyzed from basically the stomach, just stomach waist area down with no movement from meat bones and no muscle contraction or muscle uh, use in any of my legs. So coming to terms with that in hospital, in ICU, and then moving to rehab um, just 10 days after my surgery. What I was thinking was just trying to get back to my old well, old life in a way um, of where sport was really dominant and a big thing in my life. Um, I always play sport on Saturday and soccer and just always go out with my mates to water holes and jump off rocks and stuff, just like I don't know, the 22-year-old invincible male. And then when I was in rehab, I saw a video of a sit scare um, skiing down a mountain and instantly knew that that was something that would fit in with my adrenaline life before and something that I think that it looks pretty cool to ski down a mountain and I was like if I can do that and go skiing with my mates and be on the same playing field so to speak and get back into a sport like skiing that was really in my life from I guess almost when I was two three years old it would be um, it'd be a great way to just get back into what I would like or feel, I guess, normal in a, in a way to speak and then um, just push the boundaries with that and see if I can become a Paralympian. And I was four years earlier than what I was expecting. I was expecting to be going to Beijing, so 
two and a half years away or two years away now, but then managed to ski well for two years prior to 2018 Winter Paralympics and qualified and competed there last uh, two years ago. Sorry, it feels like it was last year. <laughs> and yeah, it's just been it's been a great learning curve for with um, meeting Kel and she's pushed my training to levels and heights that I didn't even realize that my mind could go or my body could go with fitness goals, fitness endurance, and then adding this BFR training into it. It's been it's a hobby to hold your level on top of that. So it's it's been an amazing journey the last seven years, and I'm keen to see where it takes me in the next 60 years, I guess. Yeah, that's a great introduction. And just a little bit of a basics around what is sit skiing and, and what does your competition look like? Yeah, okay. So I guess the simplest way of putting it is I'll start from the bottom. So you have a single single ski on the snow and then a spring and shock suspension system, which is attached to a, a frame that moves kind of like your knees to absorb bumps. And I guess when you in a turn to absorb the g-forces that you're taking in the going 120 k's down a mountain and then on top of that there's obviously me um, strapped into a, a seat with a lot of snowboard buckles and ratchets and velcro straps and everything because you don't want to be coming out of that ever and then you've got two little well, i wouldn't say little two outriggers on on my arms which help with balance and getting on chairlifts and traversing against or along flat flat areas of snow and they just help me do with turning and yeah staying upright i'm really not crashing so you start at the top of the mountain go down are you going on a set course is it a set distance um so every um every racetrack is different there's not one that you will ski the same even if you're skiing the same hill over and over again yeah we start at the top and then the course is set that morning for a race scenario and then we'll have one inspection run which is um, a slow 20 minute inspection of the course so you try and remember between 30 and 45 turns and then next up you're racing it as fast as you can um, that's with the speed events and then with the so speed events you've got downhill and super giant slalom which uh, turns from 50 plus meters to 40 meters and then after that you've got giant slalom and slalom so they're called the tech events and i only compete in giant slalom because slalom is it's not my forte in skiing. I like to just point it down the hill and go fast and make little well, little long turns, I guess. And in slalom, you're doing turns between oh, uh, 8 to 12 metres. So, and it, that sound might seem long, but on a course, it's, it comes at you very, very fast and it just hits you in the head and the chest and arms and it just beats you up. And it's not, it's not fun for me. Yeah, and 120 kilometres an hour, that's, that's pretty quick. <laughs> yeah then moving forward obviously all great athletes all good athletes have a very good strength and conditioning coach working in their team um we, we mentioned mm -hmm. earlier kelly and she's been on this podcast so you started working with kelly and uh, i'm assuming you, there's a lot of fitness a lot of strength work that goes in conjunction with this type of training as as with all athletes and then obviously the world of bfr got introduced so how and why did you start using BFR? Yeah, so as I said before, Kelly has been a godsend in my training and fitness levels over the last two years. And then all of a sudden in the mail, I got sent these cuffs with 
little valve on and a little pump in the mail and I was rang Kel and I was like, what are we doing with this? And I, I had no idea what BFI training was or where to put them or what, what to what to expect. And then she's like, oh, just put them on your arms as hard as you can go and put them up to about, uh, I think, I don't know, 120. I put it up and then all of a sudden I just feel my my fingertips just go a bit like tingly and she's like, all right, now just jump on the on the ski erg for five or, or t- 10 or 20 minutes. And I was like, I don't know if you're being serious. So I jumped on and I think after five minutes I had to stop. So I caught her up and she goes, oh, no, maybe put it down a little bit until we get used to it. And it was, I didn't know, it hurt a lot, firstly. <laughs> and then the best feeling is also taking the cuffs off after you've finished a, I don't know, a 40-minute ski egg sesh with these on and it's you feel all the blood rushing back to your fingers and then you've got a good pump going. So it's, yeah, I had no idea what they were at the start, but now, and we use them, I think, twice a week. And then obviously now in this weird time where we're just training at home, we don't have access to um, a lot of heavy weights. I'm using them pretty much every day with just high reps and high repetition to get the blood flowing and try and get keep the strength conditioning up. Yeah, so our initial discussion uh, with Kelly and myself was we spoke about you and about the potential of using it in several aspects. One, just, well, I guess, overall, just decreasing your total shoulder load. Yeah. Um, obviously, because, you know, you're in a wheelchair and, and you're pushing around. So, you know, how can you get more bang for buck? Because you're using your shoulders all day and then when you go and train, you're using your shoulders yeah. even more. So you, you have no respite. You, you, you can't rest. So we spoke about potentially using it for strength. Uh, using it for strength when you travel, when you haven't got access to uh, all the facilities and obviously in, in the situation like now and also from a fitness perspective because there's a lot of work around cycling, running, rowing at the moment, using BFR cuffs and finding some sort of cardiovascular benefit and performance yeah. benefit as a result. So I guess, therefore, that's why she she surprised <laughs> you. I think that's a nice little introduction. Yeah. And you've been using it for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So do you want to just give a couple of examples on how you use it? Just a, a quick snapshot of an example of how you might use a ski erg and potentially uh, one or two favorite exercises that you might do strength-wise mm-hmm. um, when you're traveling and or when you've got full facilities yep. as well. I wouldn't say it's any of my favorite exercises, but it um, it does kind of feel good when you get to the end of it. Whenever Kel sends me a workout with a ski erg session, and then it's got at the end, use BFI cuffs. I'm like, okay, thank you for this. This is gonna, this is gonna suck and be painful, but at the same time, I know I'm getting a lot of benefit out of it, and it's gonna, in the long run, it's gonna be a lot beneficial for my strength and my shoulders. So I don't obviously overload them. On the ski erg, we do anything from, depends how much load we want to put through them, but a 40 minute consistent conditioning session with heart rate at 170 to 175 depending on the recovery that day and then anything from a little 20 minute interval session where we go full hard for a minute or minute 30 rest for or not rest but just keep the arms moving for 30 seconds and then keep going Um, i enjoy the little high intensity rest sessions um, because obviously not as long as a 40 minute session but it's getting there get out feel a lot of burn and I see a lot of um a lot of benefit. Yeah, so I see a lot of benefit from using BFI on the ski erg. On the other side of that there's a strength conditioning when 
overseas, we don't have access to gyms often or ever. And then it's just little home workouts like push-ups, a push-up circuit with the cuffs on and just doing high high reps like 15 to 20, resting and going again with um, moving your different arm positions for chest and chest taps, chest push-ups, dumbbell lifts or core, um, everything like that. So the BFR cuffs, I love them. They're great. I tell everyone about them. I've told everyone I meet who is an athlete or even not an athlete who wants to get strength benefits in and not overload their arms or even even their legs on days where they're a bit sore and tired. I tell everyone to go for them. They're they're an amazing and also really hurtful product at the same time, but (laughs) they're really good. It's always hard to make this distinction, I think, because you you sort of say, well, what kind of changes has it truly made? Uh, more from just a uh, subjective viewpoint because uh, an athlete who progresses in their training would naturally get better, you would hope. They would naturally get stronger. From your perspective, from when you started to now, what are the things that you've noticed that BFR may have played a small part in that? There's obviously lots of other, you know, good treatment and your nutrition yeah. and obviously your solid caffeine consumption as well, <laughs> which obviously helps with performance. Yeah. I think since using the BFR cuffs in over the last two to three weeks, more consistency and putting them into my daily warm-up every day and my shoulders feel, I've had this little, like I subluxed my left shoulder, when was it, four years ago and it's always been a little bit weaker and not as stronger as my right, my right one, even though my right one is my dominant side, but my left shoulder's just never got back up to where it was before. And over the last, I think, three to two weeks, I've just seen, I've just felt my left shoulder feel a lot more stable. I don't know if it's because, I don't know what it is, but I, yeah, the only thing I've changed in my training is using the BFR cuffs daily and in my warm-up routine, and it really gets helps get the blood to my shoulder, and then I can jump into a strength routine or a skiing session and my shoulders, I normally take about 11 to 12 minutes to warm up and get going. But after in the last two weeks, I've noticed it takes about, I reckon, a minute and a half, two minutes to get fully going. So doing 20 minutes or half an hour warm-up session with the cuffs on, it's it's definitely improved my shoulder mobility and my movement and how warm-up they get in the blood flowing. So and I don't feel, yeah, they just feel less niggly, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and that's a comment a lot of people have actually said, shoulders and knees in particular, they're really great to get the areas warmed up. And I think it's, I'm assuming that it's very important for you to be able to decrease that warm-up time because if you'd spend two minutes versus 20 minutes getting your shoulders ready, that's 18 minutes of extra work that your shoulders have to go mm. through. And then when you finish yeah. your session you've then got to use your shoulders to obviously wheel your, your chair around. And exactly. So it's, I guess, being smarter with your training, um, more bang for buck. Um, and there's there's obviously a lot of research around pain, pain in joints and tendons in particular, where BFR has been shown to lower that as well. So potentially that's yep. where that, that niggly feeling dissipating is coming into play there in conjunction with, you know, increased activation, blood flow and so forth. And with that, you get warmth. You know, it's like when yeah. obviously you're in the snow a lot when, you, when you're warm, the body feels nice when it's cold. You, you feel, yeah. yeah, you feel all the creaks it's and the groans. And... 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, sure. so what is your hardest session with the cuffs on? I'm assuming it could be a ski erg session. It'd definitely be a ski erg session with my cuffs on. Um, it'd have to be, I think, last year down in Perisher after a, it must have been a four or five hour day of skiing. Kel sends me this development day session, which is our twice a week days where I feel like death at the end of them. And then also she said, can you put the cuffs on because today is a day off and you don't really need to do anything tomorrow except rest or ski if you want. It would have been a 45 minute workout where it was heart rate above 170 and then every I would have been every two minutes push for 30 seconds to get it into 180, 185 for yeah, 40, 45 minutes. So that hurt a lot, but then there was just the mental grind of pushing through it and you've got day off tomorrow, so you can hurt now and tomorrow will be, I wouldn't say easy, but tomorrow will be nice and recovered. And also in my head, I'm always thinking about do this now so when you win the gold medal at Paralympic Games, every pain will be worth every second. So that's always in my head when I jump on a ski erg or I'm doing an intense strength session. And that seems to seems to get me through every session so far. Yeah, it's a good attitude to take because I, I know it's obviously all worth it. And isn't it amazing that you're hurting at the time, doesn't matter what session you're doing, and you always get through it. And then you think, oh, actually, so, yeah, it's surprising what you can push your body through when you really need to. Yeah, it's yeah. The mind is the very, very strong thing, and if you just push through it and convince yourself that you can do it, then anyone can do anything. Yeah, it's great. So actually, we've got three examples here now. So you're using it for your cardio, your long duration, but you're also your intense sessions as an adjunct to your strength training with your push-ups and your, or your dumbbell work, and also as a, as a warm-up as well. Um, so yeah. I think you're really maximising what you're doing there with your cuffs. That's, that's awesome to hear. Is there any other things just as an athlete in general that you, you find very useful around your preparation? There's also, um, for instance, well, I use them for sometimes we have early morning sessions. So six o'clock start on snow, which is even before the sun is, is coming up and it's obviously really cold then. So before those sessions, I'll put the cuffs on for, three minutes on, three minutes off in the morning just to get the blood into my shoulders and move it around while I'm just eating breakfast or packing my bag or anything in the morning. And then I've noticed on the snow, um, once I get into my sit ski and start skiing, my shoulders are already firing and they're already, they're already ready to, to go. Like I've already had 20-minute warm-up even without doing anything. So in a training scenario on snow, they've worked, they've worked wonders with just being on snow and in the first row down the hill, I'm ready to go at 110% instead of a few warm-up runs and then I'm ready to kind of, I don't really lag into training. I think you're truly maximizing everything you can with BFR. I think so, yeah. That's good. So just going a little bit off track, not talking about BFR, but, you know, obviously with an athlete, you use lots of other stuff in your preparation. Is there any other tools in the toolbox that you feel has been uh, useful for your preparation or, you know, for your competition? I don't know. The only thing I can think of is just having Kel as a trainer and then a friend to talk to on days where it just feels like crap and I don't want to train or skiing didn't go well. Kelly's not just, I feel like she's not just a fitness coach. 
and a strength coach who's become over the last two years a very, very good friend and someone that I see integral to me um, having success in my sporting career. So I guess without getting too emotionally deep with that, <laughs> Kelly would be a very, very strong part of who I am and how successful I'm going to be. Yeah, and look, she's a well-respected strength coach in the circles that I run in. So I'll also make sure that in the blurb here, I'll tag her into this as well. So if anyone's listening to this, that they can check her out. Uh, she's got some stuff on Instagram and, and she does consultancy as well. So definitely worth talking to. She's had some great work just as a strength coach, but also with BFR. I think there's not much more we could talk about in terms of the BFR. You, you've you've perhaps <laughs> maximized yeah. it to its full. Mm, yeah, the, yeah. I love them. They're great. Well, it's a love-hate relationship, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely understand that with some of the sessions I've done as well. And so just moving outside of BFR, more about you as, as a person, is there anything that you're working on at the moment or that you're you're currently doing that you'd like to talk about? I'm doing this, working with this physiotherapy company down in the Illawarra and Wollongong called Baybed Physio. And right now, because... Obviously, everyone has to stay at home and they don't have access to a gym or anything. We're trying to organize some home workouts being recorded in my chair or on the ground where we can advocate for people with disabilities or elderly people or anyone really, I guess, who wants to jump in and get moving. And one of our avenues is advertising me being in a chair and I can still, or you can still work out, um, move their body, even though they don't have a little movement in their arms or legs that we're trying to really focus on, I guess, a specific group of Australians and try and just help help them out in any way we can. No, that's a great initiative. And if anyone wants to follow your journey, Sam, how can they follow you? Uh, yeah, so I've got an Instagram page. It's samtate underscore seven. And um, I also have a website, which is samtate.com.au. Perfect. So I'll make sure I put them in the notes as well. So anyone that's listening here and wants to follow your journey can see it and also see some of your remarks on some of the sessions that Kelly sets you and, <laughs> and your emojis that follow with it, which are always yeah. <laughs> bring a little bit of a laugh, but probably not to you at the time. No, after it's all right, but at the time, I'm just like, I don't really enjoy having Kelly as a coach at the moment, but at the end of it, I'm like, yeah, okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right, well, thanks for your time, Sam. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you very much. I'm about to go do a BFR session now, so. Beautiful. Fingers crossed. Well, go and enjoy that. And look, good luck. You know, hope your training at home goes well and you can get back on the snow as soon as possible. Thanks for joining. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. Oh, that was a really great interview from Sam Tate, and I, I really thank him again for coming onto the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that and the having the spectrum of something that's really simple and functional through to something that's really performance orientated with Sam. Once again, it was, a, it was a little bit of a longer podcast, but you know, I was really excited once I got Sam on and I started to reading some different articles. And I thought it was also important to highlight the contraindications and indications around BFR, or in this case, Katsu, about how we can use spinal cord injury as an indication that BFR, or in this case, if you're in the Katsu world, BFM or blood flow moderation could be a really good intervention for them and for their training. And that concludes this month's episode of BFR Radio. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you have any questions, 
please contact me through my website or my socials at Chris Cavillio. And also, if you want to purchase your own set of cuffs or you have any questions around using your own sports rehab tourniquet, make sure you get a hold of me because I'm more than happy to answer those questions. Once again, thanks for joining me. See you next month and remember to keep the pump.